Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Steve Fowler. Rob Basham got us started on our new series for the month of July. It's called Welcome. And this is a series about hospitality. And I don't know uh, what comes to your mind when you think about hospitality. You know, it might be tea parties, backyard barbecue, having coffee with someone. And those are all good things. Uh, but biblical hospitality really goes to, it plunges to deeper depths uh, and it comes to uh, as we share our lives with one another. And as I kind of just take, take it uh, on this weekend, what I want to do is I want to just sort of start with a, a couple stories from my own life, my own experience, and, and share those stories with you uh, because I think they give some contours. They give some, uh, some dimension to the idea of biblical hospitality and what it could look like and also what it doesn't look like. Um, so I just want to dive in and just, and just tell us those stories, and then we'll, we'll continue on as we look at, at, at Scripture this morning together. But story number one, uh, this is from a, a season in my life where I, I, I was moving from high school to college. A lot of you know that I grew up overseas. My parents were missionaries in, in Hong Kong. I was born in Hong Kong, went to boarding school in Malaysia, and I was part of this movement that our church is a part of, Christian Mystery Alliance. And uh, I grew up among a mission family that just watched over one another. We were very we-centric, very collectivistic. I mean, if there was a need, the whole team kicked in and they met that need. Uh, we watched out for each other uh, in, in significant ways. It called everyone aunt and uncle because it felt like family. That was my experience growing up. And of course, I graduated from high school, and now I'm in this season. I worked a summer, spent some time with my family in Hong Kong, but now I'm moving back to the United States. I'm gonna live in the States for the very first time on my own. So I said my goodbyes. I go to, go, to, uh, go to San Francisco because that's where I'm gonna to go to college. I moved to San Francisco, and uh, it's a new city, new country. I've got everything I own in two suitcases. I worked a summer job, and I got 200 bucks in my pocket. It felt like so much money. And, um, and then I, I get to the airport, and I take the, the subway uh, to, to the college. Now, subways overseas, especially in Hong Kong, Hong Kong's subway system is just, in, it's pretty spectacular. Um, I just kind of assumed that's the way it was here in the U.S., found out it's not the way, but they did have a subway in San Francisco. It's called BART, Bay Area Rapid Transit. Uh, wasn't super rapid, and it kind of got me close to where uh, we were supposed to go. It was about two miles from the college. So I've got two suitcases. I'm walking two miles to the college. Uh, it's at the top of this hill. And man, uh, this is before the days that, they, that someone had this brilliant idea of putting wheels on the bottom of suitcases. That was a great invention, whoever thought of that. So this is kind of my version of the story, like I walked to school barefoot on glass or something like that, you know. <laughs> Carry my suitcases, I get to college, and it's orientation day, so I, I'm, I'm meeting my roommate, which that's normal for me because I grew up going to boarding school. I go to my dorm room, I, that's normal for me because that's, that's my growing up. Uh, and then I get taken to this, this room where they're going to explain things like class schedules and where the cafeteria is. They're going to give a short little tour. And I'm meeting all these people, getting all the information I'm supposed to get. And then I have a one-on-one -on -one with this last guy in the room. He's the business manager for the college. He's the accountant. So I'm standing in front of him, and he asks me this very direct question, how are you going to pay for school? How are you going to pay for college? 
And my response to him was, well, you know, I worked a summer job, I got $200, and, um, and I'm, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to see if I can work a job here, but I'm really, I'm just trusting God that he'll provide. And um, he looked at me, didn't say a word, he had like these piercing kind of steel-colored blue eyes, and just looked at me. You ever had a conversation with someone where there's nothing being said, and they're just staring at you, and you're like this feels really awkward, I want to just fill in the space with some conversation. And then finally he speaks, and his name is Norm, and Norm says to me, I'm gonna give you one week to find a job, and if you don't have a job in one week, you're out on the streets. And um, I was like, okay. Um, and, I, and I'm walking out going, this is a significant problem for me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm honest, I don't have family anywhere near me, um, I, it's a 13-hour flight back home, and so I gotta figure out how to do life in this new country, and so I'm day two, day three at college, I'm walking the hallways thinking, how do you find a job? I have, I have no idea how to look for a job in San Francisco, um, and this is pre-internet, so you can't, I can't sit on Google openings, you know, job openings in San Francisco. Someone later said, you know, why didn't you look at the classifieds? I didn't know what the classifieds were. I had no idea what the classifieds were. I had no, I had no reference point to start. I mean, think about it. you being picked up and you travel to some country, you know, drop you in Tanzania, you got one week to figure out life. That was my experience. Day three of college, I see this guy who looks very familiar to me. And I realized this guy went to the church. He was in the youth group that my parents, when they were on furlough one year, they, they, went, they were at this church in Spokane, Washington, and this guy was at the church. I recognized him. I walk up to him and reintroduce myself to him. His name is Rust. Now, we're transitioning from story one, now to story two. Rust, I, I reintroduce myself to him and say, hey, um, you know, I, are you going to school here? And he goes, yeah, I'm, kind of, I'm on my fourth year. I'm almost done. Actually, I'm like on my sixth year. I'm kind of taking the slow train approach and... Um, and I said, hey, I got a problem. Um, the, the business guy said, I got a week here before he puts me on the street if I don't find a job. Can you, can you tell me how to do that? He's like, oh, yeah, sure. He puts me in his car. He drives me around San Francisco, takes me to places that he's worked at over the years, introduces me to the bosses, the managers of those different places, gives me tips on how to interview well. Um, and eventually, I do get a job. I end up being an assistant at a library, which if you know me at all, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not really a library person. Uh, at that point in my life, I had read like five books and they were all published by DC Comics. So um, I, I'm really not a book guy and libraries are quiet. I'm not really quiet. Um, so whenever the librarian would leave, I'd be like, party. I literally caused all kinds of mayhem. He would give me books and say, put this in the 900 section. I'd be like, that's eh, close. Throw it over there, it'd be fine. <laughs> It really wasn't working out well for me, but he was a super nice guy, the librarian. His name was Stuart, and, um, and so Rust, he, he's like, you know, let's, let's let me help you. I'm going to get you an interview at United Parcel Service. He gets me an interview at United Parcel Service, which, if you know my story at all, that's where I end up working for nine years. And Rust, he just takes me under his wing. I get to stay at college. He's helped me find a job. He actually you know, teaches me how to interview a job, and he, he's the guy who taught me how to drive. He, he takes me out on the streets of San Francisco. And if you don't know anything about San Francisco, it's kind of hilly, right? I mean, it's kind of a fairly populated city. He's got a Honda Accord hatchback, a stick shift. He puts me in his, his Honda Accord. He's, he's driving it. We get on a hill. We're like literally on a hill like this. 
he puts the car in neutral, pulls the emergency brake, gets out of the driver's seat and says, okay, switch with me. You're driving now. I have never driven a car in my entire life. I mean, I could get on a subway, I could ride a bus, I can ride a ferry, I can do all that. I've never grabbed a steering wheel. And he says, here's the deal, we're on a hill, so you gotta give a little bit of gas, you don't wanna go backwards, you wanna go forwards. <laughs> and I'm okay, so I literally probably took five years off the life of his tires on that first day. We just spun tires, I was not going backwards, I was going forwards. But he taught me how to drive, he drove me to the DMV and helped me get my driver's license. He just took me under his wing and helped me figure out life and how to live life in America. Because I grew up in this very we-centric culture, very collectivistic, and my culture that I just moved to in the U.S. was quite different. Now, fast forward, it's a little bit later in my first year of college. Um, I've turned out for the basketball team. I've made the basketball team, and don't be too impressed. There's like 120 people at this school, so they're pretty desperate, okay? I made the basketball team, and the assistant coach of the basketball team, his name is Gordon. And he starts this conversation up with me one day at practice. He says, hey, what, what, are, you, what are your plans for summer? What are you doing? And so well, I'm working at UPS, and you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm probably just going to stay here. My family's in China, so I'm just going to probably hang here at the college. And he's like, well, you, you do realize that they close the college through the summer. I was like, no, nah, didn't know that. Um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll figure something out. I mean, how hard could it be? Um, and so uh, I didn't know, but Gordon left basketball practice, and he was pretty troubled. And he went home, had a conversation with his wife, Chris. The next day at basketball practice, he pulls me aside and says, hey, I talked to Chris, my wife, and um, we got, you know, we, we, we'd love if you would stay with us for the summer. We realize you don't have any family. And I was like, are you serious? He's like, yeah, you could live with us. And um, we got some space. And so I lived that summer with Gordon and his, his wife. Now, they didn't have his massive home. They had a two-bedroom apartment I think they had at that point, they had a little girl um, named Megan, and um, it was this two-bedroom apartment in the heart of Oakland, and I slept uh, on their hide-a-bed in their living room, which I'm certain wasn't ideal for them, but they just took me into, into their home and just treated me like family and just watched over. Those two guys, those two guys became like family to me. They were like, these, these were like significant friendships uh, that I still have. Um, because of the way they treated me. In fact, when I met Trina the next year at college, and eventually we would get married, I, I made sure uh, that, that these two guys got in, invited to my wedding and played a significant part in my wedding. Norm, the accountant, didn't get invited to the wedding. Uh, he, he was just doing his job. Uh, but these two guys, I'm, so here's a picture of my wedding party, our wedding party, uh, and... Uh, the, the two guys in the back row that are seemingly connected at the stomach, that's, uh, that's Gordon on the left, that's Rust on, on the right, and those guys were like big brothers to me. Uh, Gordon was my best man. Here's a, the next picture uh, that, um, that um, you know, signed the marriage certificate. That's Gordon in the background. And by the way, that, that was, uh, it'll be 34 years next Saturday that that picture was taken. So 34 years. And... Um, I've told every service, I know you're clapping for Trina because she deserves all the applause for that. Um, but I, I just, I'm giving those two pictures because I had this one encounter with Norm and then I got this other encounter, like I got Rust and Gordon and these guys, they practice biblical hospitality. This, this is a picture, I'm trying to give you a picture of what hospitality can look like. This is not the only, only thing it looks like. 
Only way that it appears. But they practice biblical hospitality. Here's a definition for you of what I'm talking about. Uh, Hospitality is extending a welcome to strangers with a kindness usually reserved for friends and family. That's what they did. They treated me with a, they didn't know me. They've never met, I mean, Rust I had met before. Gordon never met me before. And in one night, after a conversation with his wife, I'm, in, I'm invited to live with them. And they treated me with such a kindness that it's a kind of kindness you would, you would give to someone you know really well or to family uh, that, 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 that's taking care of you and, and loves you. And that is what biblical hospitality looks like and what it is. And it, it runs through all the pages of scriptures. I, I want to read from Judges chapter 19. Um, I just kind of give you a snapshot of what hospitality looked like in ancient Israel. I'm just going to pull a section out of the middle of the story. It's actually a pretty troubling story, but you'll you'll get um, some ideas of what uh, hospitality looks like. It's two people. It's a guy and his uh, and his concubine. They're traveling from one village to another village, and they're going to have to make stops along the along the way. This is long before hotels and uh, and inns and all that kind of stuff because uh, they they didn't need them because this kind of hospitality was practiced. Uh, Judges 19, beginning in verse 14, it says, the sun was setting as they came to Gibeah. The couple is traveling a town in the land of Benjamin. So they stopped there to spend the night. They rested in the town square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man came home from his work in the fields. He was from the hill country of Ephraim, but he was living in Gibeah, where the people were from the tribe of Benjamin. When he saw the travelers sitting in the town square, he asked them where they were from and where they were going. We have been in Bethlehem in Judah, the man replied. We're on our way to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, which is my home. I traveled to Bethlehem, now I am returning home. But no one has taken us in for the night, even though we have everything we need. We have straw and feed for our donkeys and plenty of bread and wine for ourselves. What he's saying there is like, hey, we've got, we're not gonna be a burden to anyone. We've got food, we, we've got gas for our car, we've got feed for our donkey. Um, no one's taking us in, but we're not, gonna, we're not gonna be a burden to anyone. And in verse 20, says, you are welcome to stay with me, the old man said. I will give you anything you might need, but whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. So he took them home with him and fed the donkeys. After they washed their feet, they ate and drank together. That little few verses gives you a snapshot of what biblical hospitality looked like in ancient Israel. It was very common that if you were traveling from one village to the next and you couldn't make it in a day's trip, you would stop in a village, you would go to the town square, you would hang out there, and when people were coming home from work, they would swing by the town square. If they saw you there, they would invite you to come stay the night in their homes, their homes functioning like a hotel. This was the common experience. Genesis chapter 19, this is Lot. He's in the public space of the day and the two angels are coming and Lot invites them to be in his home. Uh, This is Rahab. Remember, she she invites the two spies. She's literally working the public square. But she recognizes who these two guys is and know that they're Israelites and and she invites them into her home. Uh, Elijah is invited into the home of the widow. Uh, Elisha is invited into the home of a wealthy Shunammite woman. You see this all the time in the Old Testament. This is just, this is normal. This is culture. This is very we-centric, very collectivistic. And when you get to the New Testament, it just picks up right where the Old Testament ended. It's very common to, to take in strangers. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 12 writes this. 
He says, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. And that is because this was, these were the, the values of the day. These were the, 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 this, this was the, it's kind of a given. In fact, it felt like a moral imperative to them. This was an act of justice. No person should be left outside. They should be brought in. No person should not be expressed kindness to, whatever it might look like. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be brought into a home. It might be food. It might be clothing. Uh, whatever it might be, Paul's saying practice hospitality. That was the cultural norm of the day. But the reality is, for you and I, our culture is very different. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. It's quite different. In fact, sociologists and psychiatrists are saying that we, we probably are living in the most narcissistic culture that's ever lived. I mean, consider that you know, there's a reality TV show and it's for, for young girls, teenage girls who are celebrating their 16th birthday, Sweet 16, and uh, one episode shows a young girl who is just mad because she wants a major road shut down, blocked off in her city because she wants a parade, a marching band to go down that road and to her house and then she's gonna walk in on the red carpet to her party for her, her 16th birthday. Or, 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 or consider the, the fact that, you, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's an industry in America now that you can hire your own paparazzi. I mean, think about this. Tree and I could have an anniversary dinner next Saturday, um, and uh, we could hire paparazzi. They could show up, take a bunch of pictures, flashes going off, and everyone in the restaurant would think, man, these guys are a pretty big deal. You can do that for your own. You could just have people show up, and you can appear to be like a celebrity. Parents are buying, you know, bibs for their babies. And on them it says, you know, supermodel or chick magnet or they have a pacifier the baby's sucking on and it's all blinged out and they're reading new nursery rhymes. And, you know, not like, it used to be like this little piggy went to market. Now some of the nursery rhymes are this little piggy went to Prada. Literally, that's, there's, some, there's some books that, that say that. And it's this, this idea that it, it been, it, we're pretty self-absorbed. In fact, 37,000 people were studied from the mid-1980s until now, and sociologists are saying that, that the narcissistic personality traits are, are rising at a rate that's equal and higher to obesity. That is, that's our culture. In, in, instead of we-centrism, we're, we're, it's me-centric. Instead of uh, collectivistic, it's individualistic. And... Um, and and this, this, is, this is who we are. This is the society we live in. And hospitality in our society is, man, it's, it's, it's pretty hard. It's pretty, because there's so many roadblocks and so many barriers to living out biblical hospitality in our society. But Henry Nouwen says this. Nouwen writes about hospitality and says, if there's any concept worth restoring to its original depth and evocative potential, it is the concept of hospitality. Well, How? <laughs> How do you, how can you kind of, kind of revive the potential of biblical hospitality? How does that happen? And what I wanted to just say to you in the time we got, got left here is that how it happens is we have to live in such counter, uh, counter-cultural ways that literally what we have to do is rebel against the cultural norms. And actually what I'm inviting you to, 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 to think about doing is engage in a sanctified rebellion against the cultural norms of focusing on our, ourselves and helping us lift our chins a bit to look around to see who around us is in need. Who around us could we show hospitality to in whatever way that God might be prompting? 
And here's what happens when this takes place. If we were to to begin doing this, uh, hospitality would unseat personal comfort and safety with radical sacrifice. Comfort and safety are major idols of our day. These are things that are important to us. Now, you're probably aware that in in the first and second, third century in the Roman Empire, the the culture of that day was quite different than ours. And one of the things that was, was quite unusual about that culture was they treated people as disposable, meaning that, you know, if your parents were getting a a, a little older um, and maybe they were struggling with some sickness, what was normal in that day is you would take the elderly and you would dispose of them in the public square. You basically get rid of your parents as they got old or if they got sick. Or you might take them to the temple steps of the, of the of the pagan uh, the the pagan gods of the Romans uh, that, that they worshipped, that was fairly normal in Roman culture. Or if there was a child that was sick, they would take the baby to the temple steps or to the public square. If a child was born and was struggling to survive early on in its life, they would dispose of the child in the public square. If a father had some changes in their occupation and was struggling to feed their family, it, was, it, it wasn't all that uncommon for a father to take children that he couldn't feed and put them in the public square. In, in, the, in the Roman Empire, it was, it, was, it was fairly normal to treat human beings as disposable. But there was this movement of Christians, this early church that also lived in Rome. And what history tells us is that what the church would do is that they would walk and they'd see the public square and they'd see children left on temple steps and they would pick up babies and they would take young children and they would take the, 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 the elderly and they would take the sick and they would bring them into their homes and either nurse them back to health or help them die with dignity. This was the common experience in Rome that the, that, that, that the Christians would engage in. In fact, history tells us in about 250 AD to 280 AD, a significant plague struck the Roman Empire. And it struck all the Roman Empire, and it was horrific. There were 5,000 people a day dying in Rome. And this, this plague, which most medical people now think that this was a smallpox plague, um, it, it had these effects. This is from a history book. tells you about, um, the, 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 here's the symptoms. The intestines are shaken with a continual vomiting. The eyes are on fire with the infected blood. In some cases, the feet or some parts of the limbs are taken off by the contagion of disease putrefaction. Sorry about your lunch plans. But that was the, that was the, that was the experience in the Roman Empire. People were suffering. 5,000 people a day dying. In fact, some of the, a couple of Roman empires died. A guy named Hostilian and another guy named Claudius died from this plague. And, um, but here's what the early church did. Because the Romans were putting the sick, their own family members, out in the public square in the temple steps. They were taking those infected in their own families and disposing of them. And what the early church did is they went out there and took these people with very contagious diseases and brought them in their homes. A guy named Dionysius writes in history and says, talking about Christians, he says, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Friends, 
I'm, not, I'm not saying this so that you know that, that because you know I'm not making any statements about immunizations. I'm not. I'm, I mean, I'm not saying it's bad to have hand sanitizer. It is interesting to note that hand sanitizer is a 1.8 billion dollar industry in America today because safety is very important to us. I'm showing this to you because this is how deeply involved the church was in biblical hospitality that they'd even put their lives at risk. Hospitality, this sanctified rebellion of hospitality unseats personal comfort and safety with radical sacrifice, which then actually takes us to this, this next characteristic of the sanctified rebellion. It's this, hospitality deposes invisible faith with a compelling witness because suddenly everyone sees what you're doing. By the way, in Rome, 5,000 people a day are dying. It drops to 1,500 when the church is activated. There's people who are nursed back to health. And what happens is if your life is saved by someone who, who, maybe they stayed healthy, maybe they lost their life, you become very interested in the motive of why they cared for you. And they were introduced to Jesus. And suddenly this invisible faith becomes a compelling witness. And people not only hear about Jesus, they experience Jesus. Now, a guy named Constantine, which you probably heard about in your history classes, Constantine makes Christianity a state religion. Constantine then dies some, some decades later, and a new emperor comes in. His name is Julian, Emperor Julian. And Julian feels threatened by Christianity because of all I just read to you and, and the compelling love they're showing their city. And what he wants to do is he wants to reinstate the pagan religion of Rome. So he writes a letter to his high priest of this Hellenic faith. He says this, why do we not observe that it is their benevolence, speaking Christians, to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead and the holiness of their lives that have done most to increase Christianity? This is the problem. These people are loving the city so much and it's caused an increase. There's more Christians than there's ever been before and this is a problem. And if we're gonna bring our religion in, we gotta change things. And so what, what, what Julian ends up doing is he tells his high priest to take corn and wine and give it to all the poor in the cities and to anyone who's begging to provide resources. He has hostels built so that people can, can stay in them and not be left out in the public square. And then he writes this to his high priest. He says, for it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the Galileans, Christians, support not only their own poor but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Teach those of our faith to contribute to public service of this sort. Here's what's happening. The Roman emperor is seeing Christianity being lived out and, and the people are all seeing the distance between the pagan religion and Christianity and this guy is trying to say, be more like the Christians. Do what, practice hospitality like them because the people are feeling this and their hearts are being won to Jesus. In fact, that's exactly what happens. This is exactly what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter five, he says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Faith is not invisible. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. And that's exactly what was happening in the Roman Empire. Because the people were involved in a very counter-cultural, sanctified rebellion. And hospitality was unseating personal comfort and safety with radical sacrifice. It was deposing. It was deposing an invisible faith. And this compelling witness went out. And it's because the people were like, little, uh, like a little Jesus in their city. 
and the city was one to Christ. Uh, last thing that hospitality does. It, uh, it dethrones fragmentation with connection. You probably don't need me to tell you that our culture today, our society today, is more polarized than ever. We're more fragmented than ever. I mean, everyone is sort of kind of falling back into, the, into groups of people that think alike, we're building walls, we're pulling pins from verbal grenades, throwing them at one another, and, um, and we're, we're just, we're, we're demonizing one, we're demeaning, we're devaluing each other. I mean, it's, 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 it's liberal versus conservative, it's Republican versus Democrat, it's men versus women, it's heterosexual versus homosexual, it's CNN versus Fox News, it's rich versus poor, it's the 1% versus the 99%, it's AT&T versus Horizon, even ducks versus beavers. Things have got really, really bad, folks. <laughs> and, and they have. We become so fragmented. And guess what? In those days, that same polarization and fragmentation existed. But it was transformed. It was transformed because Christians took in strangers. And they spent time with people who were not like themselves. And it made them stick out like a sore thumb in society. Paul would write in Galatians chapter three, verse 28, now in, in the gospel, in Christ, there's no Jew nor Gentile, there's no slave or free, there's no, there's no male or female. What he's saying is that in Christ, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no racism, there's no classism, and there's no sexism. Because everyone is in Christ has equal standing before, before God. And, and this was a radical thought. This, friends, this is why, this all existed before Jesus goes to the cross, this is why the disciples, uh, when Jesus is at the well in John 4 with a Samaritan woman, they're like bewildered that Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman for, for three main reasons. One, Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Samaritans are seen as, as someone from a lower class in society. Men don't talk to women. I mean, that, that's like, a, that, you don't do that in that culture. And you certainly don't talk to someone who's on their fifth husband. Because their life is a mess and you don't hang out with people whose lives are a mess because it's going to contaminate your life. You keep them at a distance. And this bewilders the disciples. Acts chapter 10. This is exactly the same reason that the church calls Peter on the carpet because he's gone to the home of Cornelius. Well, why is that a problem? He's a Roman centurion and the Romans are oppressing us. And he's a Gentile and no Jewish man would ever go into the home of a Gentile because that would bring spiritual contamination on him. But if you know that story, Peter's compelled by a, by a vision or a trance and then the spirit of God falls in that place and the people get that, that, that actually that Jesus is for everyone. Friends, hospitality, love of the stranger, reaching out to people who do not think like you or like me. That person you work with is like, man, that person's just weird. I, I don't know, I gotta keep my distance. Or that person in your neighborhood, that's just, they, they vote a different way, they watch different TV shows than you. When we start loving people who are different from us, it unseats that fragmentation that all of us do not like and it replaces it with connection. And if you're looking for a way to transform society, if you're looking for a way that you can add gas to the fire of a city being at peace with God, guess what? Share a table with somebody who's not like you. And what you'll see is walls coming down. And that's the results of this sanctified rebellion, this biblical hospitality that treats strangers like their best friends 
or family. Now, let me just kind of wrap things up, give you a couple ways to engage in this sanctified rebellion. First one's more, it's kind of more intellectual. It's just asking yourself the question. Bless you. What radical sacrifices are you willing to make for the protection and safety of others? Remember Gordon and Rust? Rust put me in his car. I, I've never grabbed a steering wheel before. He risked the condition of his car, right? He also risked his life. He took a risk. It's a sacrifice. That, that counts. Gordon took a risk. He had no idea what it was like to have me living in his home. He had no idea the inconvenience it would bring. He, he, he took a risk. Some of you have taken risks. You're, you, you're foster parenting. You're, you're taking care of, you're taking in kids in your home. Some of you are taking risks. You're, you're caring for our new neighbors, refugees who have been uprooted from their countries because of religious persecution or because of war. You're, you're delivering firewood to people who can't afford to heat their home in the winter. You're delivering meals. You're providing clothing. Those are all acts of biblical hospitality. Some of you are like, ah, I've got to be better at this. You're, you're doing it. You're making sacrifices. What, what are some of the sacrifices that God may be prompting you today to take that might disturb your personal comfort and maybe even safety as you provide safety for someone else? Second way you engage in the sanctified rebellion is simply this. Talk less, eat more. <laughs> Don Bubna, former uh, pastor of Salem Lions some years ago, um, Don told me this. He said, you know, Steve, one of those spiritual things you will ever do is have a meal with somebody, to eat with them. He says something significant happens when you have a meal with somebody else. You talk less and you eat more. You sit down with someone, you invite, you, in fact, just ask yourself the question, who's been, who, who's been seated around your table lately? Who's, who's been around your table? And if it's a stranger, guess what? You, you get to ask a question. You can just simply say, hey, what's your story? Tell me, I wanna hear your story. You eat, and when you're eating, it's really hard to talk. Um, you, you, you talk less and you eat more and you listen to their story. And if they tell their story, and maybe you could ask a question like, well, is God in your story anywhere? Be a great question to ask. But talk less, eat more. You, you, what you're doing is you're breaking down walls, you're replacing fragmentation with connection, and you're hearing, you're building relational trust with your neighbors, your coworkers, and those in the city. I will never forget the power of food growing up as a kid. Go to boarding school. Some of you have heard this story. Go to boarding school, come back at summertime or in the winter. And um, my parents typically took us to Kowloon Tong Alliance Church. I loved going to that church. When my parents said we're going to Kowloon Tong Alliance Church, I was like, yes. And it wasn't because I loved the, the preaching. I, I, I can't remember one sermon from that church. I, I, remember, I don't remember. You know, I, not one word. I don't even remember the names of the pastors who were that church. I don't remember any of the music. I do remember they had these chairs in the back of the platform. Like if you were doing announcements, you had like a little chair. If you were leading worship, you kind of had a bigger chair. If you were preaching, you had this big chair, looked like a throne with a big back to it. We need to bring that back. That was, the, I, remember, I remember that. <laughs> I do remember that. I also remember that they did the same benediction every weekend. 
Lord, bless you and keep you. His face turn towards you, shine on you, be gracious to you. Every week, same benediction, every weekend. And when that benediction was, giving, was being given, my, I was starting to get excited because the really good stuff was about to happen. Church would be over. We'd walk out the side doors. We'd go into the courtyard, and there was soda and cookies. And we ate cookies, and we drank pop, and people were connecting and relationships were being built. I was, I was kind of confirming these facts with my dad last night. He said, yeah, actually, that church, what they would do is like three or four times a year, they would throw a meal, and they would say, hey, invite all your unsafe friends. Just bring, we're just going to have, we're going to do church, and then we're going we're to have a meal. And um, something powerful takes place when food is being consumed around people. It just takes you somewhere. And... And there's likely people that God's placed in your life that you could extend biblical, you could love the stranger by simply saying, hey, let's do coffee. Or come on over and let's do a meal. I want to hear your story. And guess what? Personal comfort and safety become less important. An invisible faith can become visible. And fragmentation begins to fragment. And connection begins to take place. And I'll say this, our vision of a city at peace with God would accelerate if we leaned in to this sanctified rebellion together. May it be so. Let's pray together. So Lord, we say to you that, um, well, we should remind ourselves that Lord, you, you have an invitation you've made to us. There's a big party one day, the wedding feast of the Lamb, and there's a seat for every one of us who belong to you. You're, you're going to invite us to this big party, and you're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate with you. What a great day that's going to be. And you told your first disciples that you're going away, and you're preparing a place for them. You're preparing a place for all of us. And we've got homes. We've got dwellings that you're preparing for us because you want, you want us to dwell with you forever and ever. You want to be with us. It's amazing who you are, God. And God, as we, as we embrace this spirit of hospitality, I ask and pray that you would cause our eyes to be open like those two on the road to Emmaus who, who begged you to have dinner with. They didn't know who you were. You were a stranger. They invited you into their home, but when the bread was broken, their eyes were opened to who you were. May eyes be opened all over the city in our name. May my eyes be opened to your presence as we break bread together and we love strangers together as the family of God. May it be so. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.